like your attention to John chapter 5 this evening, John chapter 5, and I'll meet you there in just a moment. When I look at passages, uh, sections of scripture like John chapter 5, they're really unique in my estimation, uh, very interesting to me, and oftentimes I think that they are neglected uh, in scripture, perhaps because there is a geographical location tied to them. Maybe we don't uh, study those as much, perhaps because we don't find that as interesting, and yet when we really boil it down and break it down into many of the things that take place here in John chapter 5, truly there are some great things of application that we can uh, put into our lives to hopefully help us be better servants uh, for our God in heaven above. In John chapter 5, we read about what we call and what is called for us the Pool of Bethesda. And if you look at a map, this pool was located just north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, and surrounding this pool stood five giant pillars or five giant columns. And what people would do is they would commune around this, this pool, commune around these columns and these pillars, uh, and they would wait for what was called the stirring of the waters. And if you read through the first couple of verses, you understand what it is that's being talked about there. People of that day in John chapter 5, they, they often talked about the pool having what they called these uh, healing powers, I guess, so to speak. And from that came uh, the, the name, the Pool of Bethesda, which is translated uh, House of Mercy or House of Kindness. And what people would do is they would gather and they would say that an angel from heaven would come down and that he would touch the waters or he would make the waters stir. And that whoever touched the waters, people who were sick and diseased, would often go there and they would lay there. And whenever the waters began to stir... It would, whoever was first able to get down there and touch the waters, they would be healed. They would be able to go on their, on their way, on their lives, living like they used to be able to live, not having to worry about the infirmity or, or disease or sickness or whatever it was that was plaguing them in their life. Now, there's debate on this. If you, uh, if you read anything, scholars have a lot to say about this. A lot of people believe that maybe the angel wasn't real, and they say that this pool was perhaps just a natural spring and that it would cause the water to ripple, and that the water, just as, as water itself, had some kind of healing effect on the people who were there in uh, the pool. Uh, we, could go, we could go a lot into detail, talking about whether or not this truly happened, and I guess if we do that, we kind of begin to lose, the, lose sight of what is really being talked about, what's really said to happen here, uh, here in John chapter 5. Could God have sent down an angel to stir the waters? Absolutely, He could have. Could this have been something else? Maybe so, but... There are four things that I think that are important for us to understand as we go through this. I want to walk ourselves through this text and pull four of these uh, applications, four things for us to think about as we go through uh, this particular passage. The first word I want you to think about is this. I want you to think about the word disease. When you read here in the beginning of uh, the book of John chapter 5, when you think about the pool of Bethesda, okay, I want to make this personal for us. When you think about this particular pool, I want you to imagine yourself there in the midst of this. Think about maybe like an outdoor nursing home or an outdoor uh, hospital. Uh, it's a place where, where people don't come and gather here by choice. It's not a place where people would come with their friends and families to just enjoy a fun time to hang out. It's not where you go just because you want to go there just to have a good time. But rather, when you read about the pool of Bethesda, it is described for us as a place that is full of sickness, a place that's full of hurting and pain and heartache. You notice verse 3, "...and these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water." You see, it's a place where the maimed went. Those who were sick, those who were dying, those who were hurting, that's where these kinds of people went and spent their time. 
A place where anybody with any kind of physical or mental or emotional ailment, that's where they went and spent their time. Picture yourself in the middle of all of this that's going on. Picture yourself here with all of these people hanging on to these five giant pillars, these great columns that are surrounding the pool, and you can hear the pain. You can see the agony. You can hear uh, all of the things that these people are having to endure and, and go through. Some of these people having been there for, for weeks, for days, some having even been there for years, clinging on to hope that one day they would be able to be in that water, they would be able to touch the water, the rippling of the water, and that one day they might be able to be healed. Somehow, in some way, they would be the one who gets to touch the water. You know, when I think about individuals who are there, for some of these people, it would be for them getting back to a, to a certain state of health that they used to once be able to enjoy. Perhaps they would be able to regain the ability to walk again like normal. Maybe it would be able to regain the ability to hear or to see or to talk, to do all of these things that they used to do. How horrible it is for someone to be able to live their life like what we might say a normal person might be able to do, and then to have that stripped away like that. To go through some kind of uh, physical ailment, whatever it might be, to lose that portion of their life, and then to now be able to have to go through this difficult circumstance, how hard it must have been for them to look out and to see people passing by who were able to enjoy things in life that perhaps they once used to be able to, to enjoy, but now because of their physical ailment, disease, or sickness, they can't. People doing things that they used to be able to do, but now you can't do those things anymore. Regardless of cause, regardless of outcome, how difficult that had to have been to be able to experience life, to know what life had to offer you and to go through those things and then to have it stripped away. But then you think about people that were there who perhaps didn't know anything else but the hurt and the pain and the sickness that they had been through. Maybe from birth, they'd never been able to, be, to, to walk. Maybe from birth, they were never able to see or to talk or to do any kind of basic thing that any person could normally do in their lives. Maybe they've battled some kind of deformity or mental struggle, and perhaps they've never been able to heal from it, regardless of the situation, regardless of how long anybody had even been sitting at this particular pool. There is everybody sitting, praying, hoping that maybe one day, by some chance, they would be the ones who would get to touch the rippling of those waters, the stirring of the waters, to gain that healing and have opportunity to live their lives to the fullest. That's what's going on here in John chapter 5 as we begin reading about the pool of Bethesda. You know, when I, when I look at this from our perspective, right, from, from a 21st century individual, in our day and age, especially with having gone through what we've gone through for the past, I don't know, three years or so, I think that we would tend to avoid a place like this, wouldn't we? if we ever had an opportunity to go to it. Not necessarily talking about an actual nursing home or hospital. We, we tend to go in there uh, with no fear for, for our health. But to take a place like the Pool of Bethesda and place it in a modern day setting, imagine the germs, the disease, the, the sickness. A place like that, we would avoid like the plague, right? Like maybe that's where that, that saying came from. But in our physical minds, we would never want to visit a place like this, would we? All the time, you and I are trying to do all that we can to, to make sure that we stay healthy and that, that we are putting ourselves out of harm's way so that we don't have to deal with making our life any harder than it already is sometimes, and that's fine. We should be concerned with our physical health. 
And yet I think about Jesus as I read through John chapter 5. And I think about our Lord, how in this particular instance right here, none of that seemed to matter to Him, did it? Despite the fact that this wasn't a place where you would go just for fun, Despite the fact that this wasn't a place where important officials or celebrities or maybe quote-unquote wealthy people would go to. Despite the fact that this wasn't a place that people just thought, hey, I'll go in here and hang out for the day and just see what happens. It was a place that people avoided, and yet it was the exact place that our Lord went. Because you see, Jesus didn't care about any of that, did He? Jesus, in His love and His compassion, He saw through all of that. Jesus looked past the physical, and what did He see? Jesus saw souls. Jesus saw people that His Father had created. Jesus saw people that one day He Himself was going to give His life for. He saw souls who were worth His time, His attention, and His effort, and He gave that to them because of His love and His compassion. And I know we're talking physically, but I guess we could think about this from a physical perspective or from a spiritual aspect. Think about this from, uh, from spiritual glasses, so to speak. Look at it through that way. When you and I look at our world today, it is truly full of sin-sick people, isn't it? It's truly full of people who are, who are so diseased and sick, spiritually speaking, because of the sin that has plagued our world. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, our world is full of people who are sick with sin, with wickedness and who are in dire need of spiritual help. And truth be told, it's not a very pretty picture, is it? I want you to go to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, we get a little bit of a depiction of what this looks like, of a way that it's described for us. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is writing, obviously through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 2. Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, and my people do not consider. Verse 4, A last sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Verse 5, Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. And the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Isaiah is lamenting over these children of God, these people of God, how they have been transgressing the law in essentially every single area of their lives. And how in the most crucial ways concerning the head all the way to the heart, he says they were corrupted. They were so sin sick that this was the picture that he used to describe what it looks like. You see, I think this is a lot like what our world looks like today, isn't it? Those who are spiritually dying. Those who are suffering from disease and from ailments and who are without hope and their only hope being Jesus Christ. So I guess the question is left for us, what do we do about it? What do we do about it when we look at our world that is so full of sin sick people? How can we help? Obviously, you and I can't heal them, can we? We don't possess any kind of power to do that, talking physically or spiritually, not in the way that Jesus was able to heal people physically or in the way that He was able to bring people spiritual peace and hope. Even while He was here on this earth, we can't do those things, so what do we do? What can we do when we encounter the spiritually sick of our world? Those who have 
a disease that brings about eternal consequences? Do we avoid them? Do we avoid people in our world like that who are so full of sickness, talking about the sin sickness, just like many people avoided the pool of Bethesda in Jesus' day? Do we look at people like that and view them as, as somebody who's gross? Somebody who's, who's disgusting? Maybe as somebody who has no opportunity at hope whatsoever because of who they are. Do we think there's no way I'm going to get anywhere close to you? Do we think I'm spiritual, right? I'm holy. Maybe I've elevated myself up to this platform to where I think I'm so much better than you are because of all the things that I've done in my life. Surely there were, they, there were those in the day of John chapter 5 who would walk by that pool day in and day out. Who would look and perhaps maybe scoffingly, maybe mockingly look at them and think, how, how, how terrible. How, how better off I am to be in the position that I am and I'm not going to worry one bit about how those people are doing or what I can do for them. Brethren, when we look at the pool of Bethesda that is our world today, do we think the same thing? Those who are spiritually hurting, those who are spiritually dying, what is our reaction to them? Because you see, if that is our attitude towards those people who are spiritually hurting and dying, then we have to understand that truly we are no better off than they are, are we? John chapter 3 and verse 16, the, the golden text of the Bible, everybody knows that. Everybody can quote it. What did Jesus say? For God so loved who? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How about 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, But is long-suffering toward us, talking about God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, until you and I understand that before we ever came into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ, we were just like those people who are out in the world today. Sin in our past, brothers and sisters, we could have made the very same choices, the very same decisions that they have made. And perhaps in some instances, for some of us, maybe we did make those same choices and decisions. You see, you and I have to understand that we are no more or no more less valuable or no more more valuable than the people who are in our world today. You see, people at the Pool of Bethesda, they were sick. They were fighting disease right and left, and Jesus didn't care. Not that He didn't care about them, but those circumstances didn't matter to Him. He went among them and He showed them the power of God. Brothers and sisters, you and I have an opportunity to go out into our pool of Bethesda today to show people the power of God, not in the way that Jesus did, we can't, but by unashamedly teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, by unashamedly showing them that there is an antidote to the sickness that plagues our world today. Number two, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the word dedication. We think about John chapter 5. As I read through John chapter 5, this particular point has always stood out to me in my mind. Talking about this particular man's attitude. There's a man that's highlighted here in John chapter 5, and his attitude has always been remarkable to me. Because when I look at this particular individual, for 38 years, this man battled this infirmity. For 38 years, this man had been, had been unable to enjoy and live a normal life. For 38 years, he had been unable to participate in any activities that anybody else in his life or in his world could have ever done. He couldn't do that because of his sickness. And for 38 years, this man sat and sat and sat 
at this pool of Bethesda, hoping, praying that one day he would be healed. For 38 years, this man longed for a normal and happy and healthy life. And for 38 years, this man seemingly didn't lose a single bit of hope that he had in his heart. When I think about this man, I think about the word dedication. We assume that his infirmity, his sickness, his disease had to do uh, with his legs, had to do with an inability uh, to, to walk or to be mobile in any kind of way because of verse 7 where the Bible says, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Someone had to pick him up. Someone had to place him in this particular pool, and yet before he could ever touch the water, someone else would beat him to that. Can you imagine that? Put yourself in his shoes if you can for a moment. For 38 years, your life being filled with disappointment time and time and time again. Disappointment in not being able to live your life to the fullest. Disappointment in not being able to do the things that you would like to do with your friends and with your family. Disappointment in that every single time the water stirred, you tried to go to that pool, but someone else beat you to it. And you lost that opportunity to have any kind of healing in your life. For 38 years, this man tried, and for 38 years, 38 years, this man failed to do it. That's why I think of the word dedication. For this man to know that every single day, his situation more than likely was never going to change. To know that for 38 years, his disease and his infirmity was not just going to go away just like that. To know that, that, that he couldn't get himself down into the pool. To know that someone had to pick him up and put him in there. But to know that someone was always going to beat him into that pool. To know that he's going to fail every single time. And yet to stay there day after day after day. Still clinging on to some kind of hope that one day you'll be healed. What if on the day that Jesus had come, there in John chapter 5, what if he had decided to try to go somewhere else? What if he had asked somebody, take me away from this place. I am done. I'm sick. I'm tired of sitting here. Because for 38 years, nothing has happened. For 38 years, my life hasn't changed for the better. Take me away. What if he had done that on the day that Jesus was going to walk through this particular pool? It would have been a completely different outcome, wouldn't it? His life would be completely different. John chapter 5 would read different to us today. The health that he wanted never would have been granted to him if it hadn't been for his dedication. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. I think it's interesting when you read about the language that's used here because we're not told about how Jesus knew this man, are we? Well, we're not told about how Jesus knew of his affliction. We're not told how long that Jesus knew of how long it had been afflicting him. This word know in the Greek is the word uh, gnosko. And it's this idea of having a perception or an understanding. And so Jesus, having never met this man before, having never talked to this man before, having never even seen him before, immediately knows his life story. In fact, it takes me back to John chapter 4. You go back one chapter and you remember his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And what does she do? She tells him about her life. She says, here's, here's my life. Here's what it looks like. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, that's, that's good and well, but now let me fill in the blanks that you failed to tell me about. He tells her all of the things that she left out because Jesus knew about her life. Jesus knew everything that had gone on in her life. That's the power that Jesus had. To be able to look through and past flesh and bone 
and to be able to see what was in the heart. I'm also reminded of John chapter 5. Remember Jesus heals the paralytic in John chapter 5. The, the, the man's friends couldn't get him into the house. And so they go up to the roof and, and they tear a hole in the roof and they lower the paralytic down uh, into the room where Jesus was. Jesus heals the man and he's amazed at their faith. But then you continue reading Luke chapter 5 and you get to the Pharisees in verse 21. And in verse 21, the Pharisees are speaking among themselves and they say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus responds in verse 22, having never even heard them utter a word. And he says, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? You see, Jesus knew, he understood their hearts without them ever having to say anything to him. That's the power that Jesus had while he was on this earth. And that's what he's showcasing here in John chapter 5. He knew that this man had been there day after day after day. Jesus knew, understanding, knowing that this man would probably never ever get a chance to be healed. And yet Jesus also understood his determination. Jesus also understood his dedication and what it took for him to do what he was doing day in and day out. You know, when it comes to our attitudes as 21st century Christians, how is our dedication as it comes towards carrying the cross that you and I have been called to bear? You see, if you and I are not dedicated within our Christianity, we will fail. If we are not willing to showcase patience, self-control, diligent attitudes every single day, if we're not willing to show up day in and day out, week in and week out, regardless of what physical or spiritual infirmities we might face, then you and I will fail as Christians. How do I dedicate myself as a Christian to answering the call that God has issued to each of us? Notice verse 4. For an angel went down, this, this is the man speaking, okay? For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. We can talk about our feelings, our debates of how you want to interpret this verse. But understand who is the one who's speaking. It's not Jesus. It's the man. The man is having a conversation with Jesus. And the man is saying, this is what happens. When the stirring of the water happens, whoever touches it, they are healed. He is showcasing his belief in what takes place. That one day he was going to be healed if he just got to the water. And you see, his belief is what allowed him to come day after day after day. His belief is what allowed him to come face to face with the great healer himself, Jesus Christ, and to have the opportunity at being healed. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Jesus, what are you talking about? Why would you even ask that question? You know he wants to be healed. Why else is he there? Jesus, you know you've looked into his life. You know that he's been battling this for 38 years. You know he's come day after day after day, and you know that he hasn't been able to do it. Why are you asking him this question? But you see, Jesus wasn't really asking him this question, was he? What was Jesus doing? Jesus wasn't asking him if he wanted to be healed. Jesus was simply grabbing his attention, and he was gaining his focus. He was getting the focus of the man to be fixed upon him. You see, when I think about dedication, I understand that dedication requires attention. You see, if you and I are going to be truly dedicated as Christians, then that requires a full attention upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, our dedication within Christianity can only be proven to be true and strong 
when our attention is on the Savior. Here's number three. As we get into this, I want to recap what we've gone through here as we look at this idea of division. Notice John chapter 5. Go back into verse 5. We're going to read a little bit here. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another one steps before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was a Sabbath. Verse 6, Jesus addresses this man who has this infirmity for 38 years. Verse 8, Jesus commands him, rise and walk, you're going to be healed. Verse 9, immediately the man takes up his bed, he's made well, and he walks. You know, unfortunately, it's not the happy ending, is it, that we all wish it would be as we read through John chapter 5. Because time and time and time again, whenever you and I read through the Gospel accounts, it seems that wherever Jesus went, so went the religious leaders. So went the Pharisees. So went the, the, the Sadducees and the scribes questioning His sayings. Second-guessing the power that Jesus held. And altogether being, I guess, what we might call the biggest nuisance that they could be to Jesus during His ministry here on this earth. In Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 16, they challenged Jesus and they asked Him for, for multiple signs to prove who He was. In Mark chapter 8, we read about them uh, just simply flat out arguing with Jesus about who He was and what He was able to do. You read in, in Matthew chapter 22, in Mark chapter 10, in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 20, time and time again, passage after passage that talk about them trying to cause division and strife and doubt within the minds of the people who were listening to Jesus' teaching. John 5 is no different. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, is it, or, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Okay, Pharisees, hang on just a moment. It's not lawful, but according to what? It's not lawful according to the law of Moses, or it's not lawful according to your, what we might call, man-made traditions. You see, the law of Moses, yes, it, it forbade uh, any kind of commercial or business work, right? Just read Exodus 31, read Numbers 15, Nehemiah chapter 13, and so on. But you see, what these religious leaders did, what these Jewish religious leaders did, was they always took the law and they interpreted it in a way that was only pleasing to them, wasn't it? Does that sound familiar today? I think sometimes when, when, when people study the Scriptures, they instead of pulling out of the text what God has put in it, that's exegeting, what do they do? They eisegete. And they take out of the text what they themselves have put into it. They want to draw out of the Bible what they think God should be telling them, and they twist it and they contort it to make it say what is in line with their lives. That's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day did with their law. Brother Woods, in several of his commentaries talking about these religious leaders, always talked about how they based everything that they did on their own interpretation of the law. They formed their lives based off of what they thought the law should say. How it was to form and mold to their lives and not the other way around. I wonder how many of us live our lives with this pharisaical kind of attitude. Not in that we, that we look at our law talking about the Word of God and we try to interpret it in a way that's pleasing to us and in a way that aligns with our lives, but also in that we look at it and so oftentimes we tend to think that we can live our lives with no care for any kind of consequences whatsoever that there might be. We, we think in our minds, oh, I'll live my life however I want. And it doesn't matter 
I'm not going to have to answer for it. I'm not going to have to deal with it. I'll keep some of the law. Some of the things that I like, yes, I'll keep those. But the things in the law that are difficult, the things in the law that require change, the things in the law that, that I don't want to have to ever deal with, I'll just throw those to the wayside and it'll all be okay. You see, you and I have to understand when it comes to the law of God, it's not just it's not a buffet, is it? Where you can just pick and choose different kinds of things. But rather, when you look at the law of God, it is what we might could say it's a fixed menu. You get what you get, and that's all that there is to it. And what it is that you're served is a full submission to God and a faithfulness in serving Him. Look, if you want to cause division in the Lord's church, you live your life however it is that you want to live it. That's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. They didn't care about the law. They, they didn't care how to handle it. They, they handled it uh, with a disrespect, with, with, uh, with no care whatsoever for the one who gave it to them. All they cared about was the glory, the praise, and the honor of men. Matthew 23 and verse 5. You see, for the life of a Christian, that's so backwards, isn't it? For the life of a Christian, it's truly completely opposite of what these religious leaders wanted for their lives. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Psalm 115 and verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name we give glory. Psalm 86 and verse 12, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. When I look at these religious leaders, they didn't care about the man at the pool, did they? They didn't congratulate him on being healed, on being able to live a normal life. They didn't ask how it happened. They didn't rejoice that it did happen in the first place. All they cared about was entrapping Jesus for having worked this great miracle. They were so hungry for power. They were so hungry for glory. They were so hungry for the praise and the honor of men. And in doing all that they could to entrap the one who was taking all of that away from them. You see, that's a fast way to division, isn't it? You and I, as brothers and sisters, will divide the church. We will divide our relationships. We will divide our brethren and our families if we do not fight for unity among the Lord's brethren. If we are not doing all that we can to build up and to edify our brothers and sisters, then we are a cause of tearing it apart. Let that not be said of us. Here's number four, very quickly. I want you to think about the word disappearance. This has always been interesting to me. Uh, when I read certain passages in the Gospel accounts, because oftentimes, whenever Jesus would do something, whenever He would, uh, perhaps a certain situation, situation was beginning to unfold, a lot of times Jesus would just simply withdraw Himself from the situation, or He would try to get away from all of the people who were there. Uh, and some people, I guess you might say that Jesus would, would skip out on the crowds. Well, whether it be uh, before a certain event took place, like before the, or during the Garden of Gethsemane, or maybe when He was going to, to choose His apostles. Uh, there were times when He would withdraw from the crowd, perhaps for His own safety, like you read there in Luke chapter 4 and verse 30. Uh, there were times when He was grieving the death of John the Baptist, or maybe when there was time where He just needed to be alone. I think sometimes we forget about the human aspect of Jesus, how He felt everything that you and I felt. And there were some times when Jesus just needed to be alone and to be able to talk to His Father in prayer. When I look at this instance here in John chapter 5, I think we are showed the epitome of who Jesus was while He was here on this earth. In the fact that Jesus didn't do anything for personal notoriety. Jesus didn't do anything for His own personal gain. Sure, He wanted people to look at the Father, and yes, He was part of the Godhead, even though He was here on this earth. 
But it was never for the purpose of him being able to arrogantly and pridefully say, look at me. I'm the Son of God and I am so much better than you. I'm so much greater than you. Bow down and worship me because I'm so far above you. See, that was never what he did. And you see that right here in John chapter 5. Jesus didn't want the crowds. He didn't want the fuss. He didn't want the fame. He just simply did his work and he moved on, unlike the religious leaders who were there in his day. And I suppose that this goes maybe hand in hand with what we just talked about, the idea of not drawing attention to ourselves because you and I know that this world would be a whole lot better place, wouldn't it? If people just simply did their work, put their heads down, and then moved on. But I guess we could say the same thing about the church too, couldn't we? That sometimes in the church, maybe the church would be a whole lot better off if brothers and sisters would just simply do what they're supposed to do, put their head down, and just move on. Instead of looking around for glory, instead of looking around for fame like the Pharisees or the religious leaders, maybe if they would just simply serve God, understanding that one day they're going to be rewarded in a way that nobody else can reward you while here on this earth. You see, the attitude of simply doing our job as Christians and then blending into the crowds all while giving God the glory in the entire process. When we look at passages like John chapter 5, I hope that they're interesting to you because when we look at particular instances like this, there truly are a lot of things that we can gain uh, as children of God. And I hope that this study has been beneficial for you uh, this evening. Perhaps you're here and maybe uh, you are someone who is not yet a part of the body of Christ. Someone who has not yet been baptized into water for the remission of your sins. You haven't repented of those things or confessed Christ's precious name. And maybe you want to do those things and become a part of the family of God. Know that we would love to help you. Perhaps you've been studying on your own. Maybe something was said tonight or maybe this morning that pricked your heart and you want to come forward and make that known. We can add you to the body of Christ so we can help assist you in that, in, in that way. If that's your need, then certainly we can help you and assist you in that. But maybe you're here as a Christian. Maybe your life's not what it should be. Perhaps there's something in your life that is taking you further and further away from God, but you want to get rid of that. You want to dedicate your life back to Jesus Christ allowing Him to reign as King in your life, understanding that everything you do must glorify Him. If that's the case and you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.